Hello and welcome to another episode of Tots. I'm your host, Ben Gardner. Today on the show, we have Patrick Bryant. He's a serial entrepreneur and the CEO of Code & Trust. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show about all of the the very cool and uh, kind of outlandish things that you've kind of done in your career and and what you're doing now. But um, give me give me a little bit of an intro into you. How did you get started in business? How many companies have you founded? What are you up to now? Well, I'll take you back to the beginning when I was 17 years old. I've always been a a hustler entrepreneur, and I remember that moment of my father walking into my room. We had we had started a business two years earlier, a newspaper company, and my father was an expert in the newspaper industry. And for two years, I had dove into this newspaper. Uh, I learned to be a graphic designer. Macintosh was new at the time. I helped set up the network. As a 15 to 17-year-old, I was just ecstatic about this company. Invested 25 hundred dollars of my own money in the exercise and my father walks in my room to tell me that they are closing the company that they are filing bankruptcy and ultimately we would lose our house my parents would get divorced and this thing that was the most exciting thing of my life I couldn't have been more jazzed about our family starting a business and now it was imploding my entire life. It was so incredibly painful as a as a young man and even as a, a early startup story. Having said that, while most people would have taken away from that exercise, man, I will never start a business again. I'm going to get a good job and live a good life. Uh, my takeaway as, as being a little bit off in the mind was I, I am going to do this and I'm going to get really good at it. I want to learn everything I can about entrepreneurship and, and how to grow a business. And much like an Olympic swimmer who, you know, their, their story is that they almost drowned and then they became an Olympic swimmer, right? My, my passion was just, I, I want to be so good at this business thing that it, I'm sure I might fail myself. I might fail multiple times, but eventually I'm going to get really, really good. And it, it really set me on this life path of getting excited about entrepreneurship, helping other people do it, starting the companies that we've started. And it, it really set the entire tone for the rest of my career, which now spans seven different startups, uh, four of which are are multi-million and a couple are still on the way. So uh, it's been a pretty good career and and I'm not even remotely remotely done. It, it's just a, a fun thing to be involved in and, yeah. and I just get jazzed talking to people about it. I love that. You, you've got a good attitude about it. You know, we were, we were joking around a little bit before the show. Um, what made your your parents or your dad decide to get into newspaper? And what year was that, that you guys started that? Well, so he, he was a newspaper salesman basically from the time I was born uh, all the way up until, you know, like I said, 15, 20 years later. And, and at that 
to that, that he was an expert, like he was around the the country helping people, you know, develop and consult on their newspaper sales processes and, and was just really involved in the industry. And then so then we're talking 19, uh, maybe 89, I think it was yeah. when he founded that newspaper, 88. And in, in those you know, years, the, the computers were just coming online. Uh, newspapers were still a, a good bit of a big deal in a, in yep. a community. And, and he really had a passion around, hey, maybe I, I should start this newspaper for our hometown and, and make a run at the entrepreneurship thing. That's very cool. What, uh, what town was this? Aiken, South Carolina, which is where I was born. Okay. Okay. Very cool. What was it like around that time when you guys were starting the newspaper, like you said, you were very excited. You had five different roles. You were putting your own money into it as well. So from when you first got started to the end of it, you know, how, how was that experience? Were you guys successful? Uh, well, the I never knew anything about the finances of running the company, right? I was a 15 year old uh, and my dad was in charge and there were, I don't know, uh, 10 to 15 uh, employees inside the company, maybe more. And I, so I was just a, a cog in the wheel and an investor in the, the owner's son. Right. Uh, and, and so I didn't really see the inside math, but I knew that we had taken money from investors and I knew that we were starting this thing and that it was going to be really exciting. It wasn't until that conversation with him in the bedroom that I really first acknowledged or understood Oh wait, we're we've spent the money and we don't have the revenue. Uh, it, you know, like it, that was that was a, a just an eye-opening experience for a fifteen-year-old because, of course, at that age, I didn't know how investment worked. I didn't understand, you know, that that uh, whether or not we'd have to pay those people back or was it a loan or you were blindsided. Like, I just too. didn't know the rules, right? Yeah, you were blindsided. Exactly. It was it was like a absolute, you know, right at when kind of it was failing, you you really got a good uh, business lesson there towards the end. Totally, totally. So you go from having this business with your dad, you thought, you know, this is amazing. This is going great. I'm learning all these things. I'm I'm doing a little bit of investing in, in this company. I'm working for something and you loved it. And then it closes. What do you do? What do you move to? I literally took everything from that business. I, I took the computers. I was driving the used minivan. We were filing bankruptcy. So those were some of the, the only assets I had in the world. And and I, at that age, 17, I, other people would have asked their parents for a little money to, to start another business, right? I, I Mine owed me $2,500. So I didn't <laughs> have that opportunity, but I started uh, hustling immediately. I, I took the computers and my graphic design skills that I learned and I created a graphic design firm. I was selling my time. It, I, it certainly wasn't an impressive business, but I, I opened that business and I immediately got started in the idea of hustling clients, going door to door, asking print shops and business owners if I could design their menus and their logos and all these other things. And it, it really just put me on a path 
not of great success in business, but on a path of understanding that that was something that I enjoyed, that I was going to be this type of person uh, that wanted to start new things. At that age, I didn't know, you know, you, you learn much year, much many years later, you learn your personality type and, and the things right. that you're good at and your unique skill and you do all this self-reflection. But as a young man, I really, in that moment, was just learning, you know, oh, this is, I really do like this thing uh, and I should, I should keep doing it. So that was my, my official first business that I had a business license for uh, was br- called Bryant Design, which was all based off of, off of that failed business. Yeah. So you took, you took all of the equipment that you could and what, like, I don't know if you remember, what was the cost like per computer back then? Because now of course it's oh, ridiculous, it, but it was a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, it probably, I mean, they were, they were pretty professional Macintosh, uh, you know, desktop publishing for a newspaper. So they, they probably cost six grand a, a piece. Wow. Um, each, each computer I'm guessing if not more. That's a lot. So you're, you're taking the assets that you can, you throw it into another business immediately and you said you were 17 at the time. And and I know we we just talked about the fact that you took this like business failing as a sign to like, I need to keep going. I need to try until until I can get it right. How many failures would you see along the path to get to where you are now in business or making bad decisions or just trying to learn the ropes and and screwing up along the way? <laughs> well, there were a lot of screw ups, but I, I, I'll just say that Bryant Design Company, ultimately, I ended up closing it after a couple of years. It was good, you know, almost part time work for a student uh, that I enjoyed, but it was a very freelance uh, sort of, of business. And then later in college, I would start a lighting and sound company that was doing uh, statewide pageants and rock and roll shows wow, okay. and buying equipment. Uh, for sound and lighting, and and that was me and two other partners, and so we started that business, which I ultimately sold to one of the other uh, two partners. That was the first time that I ever had was hiring other people. Uh, we didn't have any full time employees, but we had a lot of vendors and a lot of you know contracts, and and I really that was college, and and we really learned a lot in that. Time frame, but then ultimately, I learned something that I think is important about entrepreneurship, which is you need to become an expert in something, right? And while I had good skills, let's say not expert level, but good skills in graphic design and then sound and lighting, I, I ultimately went to work in broadcast television, and in that job role as a producer and a sound man and an editor uh, for. Uh, the television station, that's where I really learned a skill that we thought, okay, we can go start a business and we want to have a business that, you know, has a lot of equipment and a lot of employees and is, is really going to grow to something special. And, and that's uh, my first business go to team. Okay. Now tell me about go to team. What, what was the idea behind that? And then how did you scale that? GoToTeam is a broadcast television production company. Today, it's the largest in the United States with 16 offices around the United States. We do everything from production for Fox Sports, NBC News, uh, you name it, HGTV. Uh, We've got a couple of greenlit shows that we actually are the production company. We did all of the shooting for Fixer Upper on HGTV 
uh, through its entire years of being on the air. So we lots of television production inside of GoToTeam. But back then, which I think is an important part of the story, in 1997, I was 24 years old, and me and my business partner, Dwayne Scott, who is an expert cameraman and a dear, dear friend of mine, the two of us decided to start this business. We get an SBA loan for $100,000, and we set out to offer video services to the major networks. Uh, back then, America's Most Wanted, Fox News, NBC News, those were all of our first month clients. Mm-hmm. And we had written out this entire business plan, and we knew exactly to the T how many shoot days we needed to have each month. We we knew our break even. We understood completely how to stay in business, getting back to that original uh, story. We were we're going to borrow the money. We're going to pay ourselves second. We are going to make sure this business uh, works. And about five months into the business, so we started in October and then in February of 1998, a story breaks out of D.C., uh, close to where you are at at, uh, the White House. Monica Lewinsky breaks inside of, of the Clinton White House. And we hustled in a way few people have to get on that story. And we just worked so hard on our relationships to get shooting on that story. And when we uh, got parked outside the Watergate covering Monica Lewinsky, that was our breaking moment. Up until then, we were kind of running at break even, uh, just trying to figure the the business out. But at that moment, we ended up being on Monica Lewinsky for eight weeks in front of the Watergate, overtime, working every single day. Back then, we needed six shoot days to stay alive. That was our break even. We needed six shoot days a month. And in that first month of Monica, we did 30 and we stayed there for eight weeks. Wow. So uh, at the end of those eight weeks, we were made for the year. That was huge. Uh, and and we, we were uh, better yet, though, what we had done was create a foundation of the relationship with NBC that they knew we were going to deliver. We could we were going to show up. We were going to shoot what they needed to shoot, get uh, the results they needed. And that led to a literally lifetime relationship we still have today of NBC using us on uh, a lot of broadcast assignments. That's huge. And what was it like? Because, I mean, obviously that was a very controversial time. Uh, We live in controversial times now, but that was like, that was the biggest scandal, probably one of the biggest that had ever hit a president is like you're cheating on your wife and also potentially in the Oval Office in the White House, like there's there's all this craziness going on. What was it like to be there during that time? What was the atmosphere like? It, it was a, a media circus. There's no doubt. We were we were right there with, uh, gosh, I, twenty other crews sitting outside of the Watergate, uh, trying to to get some footage of Monica. We did make first audio of of her. Uh, talking to us in a particular instant, uh, uh, made it on the Dateline in in our first week. And and we really uh, did feel that. But we are by trade journalists, and and we were passionate about telling the story, telling it accurately, ensuring that we 
we did the right thing and and respected everybody around us. The other crews, uh, Monica herself, we were not remotely trying to, you know, sneak in windows or do something right. um, nefarious. Our goal was to, to be in the public place, get the shot we were supposed to get and do it correctly. But it was... It was a, a crazy, crazy time. Now, that that leads to our go-to team life after that, which was the assignments that we would go on to be uh, involved in after, which includes Ileon Gonzalez and the Iraq War and the tsunami uh, over New Year's and just story after story um, yeah. that, that uh, was, led to our growth in the company, uh, including the, the George Bush um, Al Gore election, which was was probably our next breaking moment of scale, where we went from from having uh, you know one one or two employees to to having twelve. That's huge, and yeah, I mean it's funny because I feel like the time before 1997, 1998. I was born in '98, but uh, but obviously I look at you know what had happened in the United States before that. It there wasn't as much going on, and then you hit 1997. And things just start to explode, kind of like we've had for the past three years in the United States now, where you just have scandal after scandal or natural disaster or terrorist attack or, you know, political whatnot. And that time, it seems like you guys were poised perfectly to take advantage of that. We used to joke back then that we would much rather be covering politics uh, because we yeah. we would end up doing a lot of work and ultimately making money on hurricanes and tsunamis and wars and and things that w- quite frankly we didn't want to cover. Uh, those those right. are those are very hard assignments uh, sure. that that really test who you are as a human. Katrina, my business partner Dwayne was was in the Superdome the night of Katrina when the roof blew off with Brian Williams. My so gosh. Uh, we were on a lot of assignments that were, were very difficult to cover. And and we would joke all the time, man, we I, I wish we were just on the campaign trail where where we're going to make money, but but no one gets hurt. Um, it it, it sure. was a, a pretty crazy, uh, chaotic time. But what we learned as a company that was happening in the background of all of that was how to scale. Because in our industry of shooting for these networks, you really did have about 2,000 crews in America that were shooting most of the television. And those 2,000 crews all were a one-man band type uh, shop. Not unlike the graphic design firm that I initially described for myself. But our goal as a company was to provide our level of quality and our level of ethics, our level of, um, you know, uh, showing up on time and doing the right thing, getting the story. We wanted to scale that. We wanted to have a bunch of crews located around the United States. And that's ultimately what we were able to do, which is how we have these these 16 spots now. That's huge. That's awesome. And talking about, I mean, you were essentially a, a journalist like on the ground for a lot of these huge events. How do you feel about journalism now? Because it seems like we've transitioned from, I mean, I think you described it well, or I would use your example to describe it well. 
where we have a lot of journalists who are like, I care about integrity and I don't want to take advantage of people. And I still have to do my job, but it, you know, it's sad that we're doing our job and we're showing things that we might not want to show, but this is our job, blah, blah, blah. There was like strength in, in journalism. And it feels like today we have a lot of lazy journalism and then a lot of really skewed journalism, depending on what side of the aisle the journalist falls on. How do you feel about journalism today? I'm a big believer in cycles in general. And if you look back at political strife or, you know, media yellow journalism of the, of the early part of the century, uh, I think that what happens is as new technology allows fragmentation and a fight for competition in journalism, you end up with a created spectrum of I'm fighting to the left or to the right to tell a story because I need to get those particular eyeballs, right? And so I think it ends up being cyclical. And I, I think there will come a time again, and I know it's hard to imagine at this moment, but there will come a time that there will be a consolidation back inside of journalism. And that consolidation might look very different then uh, I'm not saying, you know, when we were, when I was growing up, there were, there were three channels and PBS, right? right. On, on TV, <laughs> you, you had four, four knobs that you could turn. I'm not saying we're going to have four stations. That's, that's not consolidation. What I'm saying is in our new media world, we as consumers are going to flow into particular channels uh, and that's what the streamers, Netflix and, uh, you know, Hulu and those guys are fighting for today is getting to that place that, yeah, there's a lot of other chatter that that's still very fragmented. But there are some players at the top that we're as a society going to allow to be gatekeepers because ultimately we trust them to get it as close to accurate as possible. So I, I think that's what the at least the American market will demand over the next 20 to 25 years. And we will see a consolidation. And if, if a company is is evil and they're trying to push something that is not fair and reasonable, I think they will get pushed out to the to the diminished sides. Uh, I'm not saying they won't exist. I'm not saying there won't be people that will continue to give them support. I'm just saying the mass majority of Americans want to be in the middle. They want to be told the truth. They want to be, you know, for facts to actually be facts. Uh, And and so I think there's a a, a place that that cycle will come back. I completely agree. And and I think the way that you said it was so perfect because, I mean, we look at just for example, like. You take a typical right wing uh, media company like Fox News and a typical left wing media company like CNN, and they are probably they're definitely not the furthest left and the furthest right, but they are kind of these bastions of those kind of uh, political opinions and pushing their own kind of versions of the news. Right. But both of those get hit all of the time with people just being like, yeah, like I, we don't trust you anymore. We want the facts. We don't necessarily want your opinions. If it's an opinion piece, we want it to be labeled as such. We don't want your interpretation. We just want the news. And so I think you're exactly right. I think the cream will rise to the top. And and like you said, you know, Americans do want the truth at the end of the day. I think it's just really and I think easy. Too, and it, just to go to that same point, but from a, even a sales perspective, right? Yeah. If I'm writing a blog 
and I disclose to you that I'm an investor in this company or I make money when you purchase the thing, we're all okay with that. Uh, right. Like, that's cool. Like you might, I, yeah. I'm fine with you doing that, but you need to disclose it and be reasonable. Yep. And when you don't disclose it and you kind of trick me, then I don't feel great about that. Right. And so yeah. now I'm not going to come back to your, to your particular media outlet. And so I think as long as people get back to that place that they're willing to disclose and be honest, then those people will rise naturally uh, in their numbers of who trusts them and how many viewers they have. For sure. I think also, like you mentioned, this fragmentation, right? And I think something that happens with the fragmentation, like you said, is consolidation in some areas, but then other areas continue to spread out. And I mean, you know, some of the biggest uh, media figures right now are people doing exactly what we're doing now, talking on podcasts or they're on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook and they're sharing what they think to be valuable and what they uphold as, you know, this is my journalistic integrity. I mean, some of the best news that I get, and I'm not ashamed to say it, is from TikTok. There's an account, it's like under the desk news, and yeah. you don't get the opinion pieces. It's just this awesome woman, and she reports the news, and she's under a desk, and she's got great fluffy hair, and she wears a suit, and it's amazing. And it's funny because a woman doing that under a desk in a suit with really funky looking hair is more reliable than some of these sources, but that's from that fragmentation. She upholds the journalistic integrity to such a standard that I trust her more than I trust CNN. I trust her more than I trust Fox. And I know that I'm not getting the opinion. I'm just getting exactly the news. I'm getting the facts. And then probably with a little bit sprinkled in there, but if she does, she tells you about it. So I think it's just really cool to see kind of this new media kind of rising of all of these different channels that you have to kind of get your point across. I think you're totally correct. And, and I think that older people that feel like the younger generation has lost their way, I, that's been told in every generation ever, yep. <laughs> right? Because what's really happening is they're not processing the new technology that's coming, why the younger generation wants that new technology, and how truth and integrity fits in to that new technology. and But I believe that there are, in every generation, the, the normal middle, the, the mainstay uh, viewer, that they want to be entertained and they want to be informed and they don't want to be tricked, right? And, exactly. and so I think if you start there, uh, it, it doesn't matter what the medium or what the technology, uh, that, that group is, is gonna, gonna rise. For sure. So I, I do need to ask you, we were talking about it a little bit before the show. One of your claims to fame is that you started a rolling paper company, and I need to hear the story behind this. How, how did you start that? What was the product? How did you scale that? So when we were, oh uh, gosh, this is 10 years ago, and we owned the cigar distribution company called Cigar Row. We were the number one distributor of cigars in uh, Las Vegas. We, we had all the Las Vegas casinos, and we found out, my business partner comes in my office one day and says, we are the number one distributor of Opus X, which is this cigar that cost $100 a stick in Vegas, and because we had those accounts, 
uh, from a distribution standpoint, we were selling more of it than anyone else. And it led to this conversation of, well, if we could create a cigar that could go price point wise beside Opus X and compete with them, then we control the distribution channel, our clients would take it, and our margin would be much higher. Uh, now you, yeah. can, you can see from the storytelling from, hey, I had this freelance business that, that was selling my time to I grew GoTo team into 16 offices around the US. Now I'm in this distribution company and we're talking about really sophisticated things like distribution channels and margin, right? Uh, so at this point, I've kind of got my, my natural uh, earned MBA in business. And, and so we're, we're yeah. having this dialogue and we say, what if we were to create like a really cool cigar that was the world's most expensive cigar? What, what would that look like? <laughs> And we start experimenting with ideas. And we the first thing we did was we took cigars and we aged them in cognac. And we thought, oh, that'll be pretty good. And then we tried one. <laughs> it tasted awful, Ben. It was I don't I don't know if you're a cigar smoker, but we a little we were bit, not yeah. fans. Um, you so didn't get a nice uh, you didn't get a nice flavor to it, a nice little kick. <laughs> well, we had done bourbon aged cigars, so we thought it was a pretty good idea, but it didn't play the way we thought. And and then we decided, well, uh, what about if we took shredded hundred dollar bills from the mint? The, the mint yep. will give you these bills. And so, what do we take those shredded bills and we put them on the outside of the cigar? And it ended up looking like a I don't know elementary school craft project. It was it was awful and <laughs> not and elegant like you hoped. Like it. No, it was not cool. It was not sexy. It was <laughs> it was kind of crazy looking, uh, but. We love, like, we just laughed and we just thought, man, burning money is hilarious. This is, this is just a great idea. I don't know how we, what we do with this. And so we end up coming up with the idea that we're going to put 24 karat gold on the outside of a cigar. And what we were envisioning at the time was like wax on the outside of a liquor bottle right sure. just like a dripping down melt, right and so we're thinking man if we could what if we could melt gold and dip a cigar in it and we have this cool wax looking thing and of course in order to be edible and or smokable not hurt anyone then it's got to be pure 24 karat gold you yep. can't use anything but but uh, uh total uh you know t pure gold because you so can eat we, real pure gold can't you it's edible. You, you can, yeah. Real yeah. gold is is edible, uh, and and so if, if you if you use pure gold, it's inert. It, it won't hurt if you if you eat it. So we decided. Well, what what if we can put this this gold on the outside of the cigar? So my business partner gets a double boiler, and we're gonna melt gold <laughs> in the double boiler on a stove. Oh boy! Now, for as good as we are at at entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. we are. We are bad engineers. We we are just yeah. evidently uh, not not all together. So we we're melting gold, and literally when the gold didn't melt, we googled the melting point of gold, and you're definitely not going to melt gold on a double boiler on a stove. No. Furthermore, if you did melt gold and you dip a cigar in it, it is going to burn the cigar. You won't It'll have any flames. Yeah. Left. It's so more metal. We really had this hilarious moment of what idiots we were 
Uh, and we, we though, love this idea, and we were stuck now with gold. We were like, man, th- this is going to be cool. We got to figure this out. No one else is doing it. So we end up creating a process with uh, gold, 24 karat gold and the same materials we use to build a cigar. And we created a cigar that on the outside is 24 karat gold uh, smokable. Uh, and it is a really cool cigar experience. We, we just enjoyed it so much. We sell it in Vegas. And along the way, we pivot it into a 24 karat gold rolling paper, at which point it takes off like a rocket ship. Within that first year, Miley Cyrus took it on tour, sold it at all of her merch tables. My goodness. Snoop Dogg smoked it on stage. Little Dickie uh, was was our, our sponsored um, artist, and we were doing That's all amazing. kinds of fun stuff with him. Uh, it was on TMZ twice that year. So, uh, so yeah, this is actually this is it. This is the wow. the shine twenty four karat uh, gold cigar that that launched it all, and it was so much fun. Now today, it's in three thousand stores around the U.S. and and we're really proud of the the product, and and it's you know international and and, and really pretty known in the cannabis space uh that's for, amazing for its 24 karat gold joints i'm gonna need to get my hands on some of that that's, <laughs> absolutely that's so cool I'll get you some. so it, it's it is, it's a fun product it seems like it and so lil dicky was uh one of your i guess brand ambassadors did you ever get to meet lil dicky I did not. My business partner Dave did, uh, but I, I I just love his work. I think he's just an he's amazing, so amazing artist. He is so great. I uh, I have been watching pretty religiously. I mean, it's it's finished now until the next season. But his uh, TV show Dave is just it's so funny, and it, it follows very similar path of uh, one of my other favorite shows, Atlanta, with Donald Glover, uh, Childish Gambino, and it's like oh. you know rappers coming up in the industry, and and it's just fantastic they're so well written and it's amazing well i, I love little dicky i had to take it check out the uh the danny glover show too that's cool i hadn't heard of that one yet it's very cool but yeah so you i mean i'm just i'm blown away because it seems like you're like every entrepreneur's dream of like when i grow up like what kind of entrepreneur do you want to be and it's like i want to be like him because you're taking things that you think are like cool and fun and instead of just like waiting around or like really guys let's like think about it for a long time it's like no we want to do a gold freaking cigar get a boiler get some gold get a cigar we're gonna make a gold cigar it's it's that like try and fail and try and fail until you come up with something successful mentality and i think a lot of entrepreneurs from my age are very afraid of that it's very much so like i'm gonna really work on this idea for a long time I'm not really going to do much with it, but I'm going to I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think really hard. And then maybe one day my dreams will come true. And it's just not realistic. I get caught in that same trap, too. I'm like, I have this great idea. I'm going to think about it. And then somebody comes along and they're like, that's a great idea. You should do it. And you're like, no, I don't think I will. I, I don't want to take the risk. So it's 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 awesome to see entrepreneurs like yourself who are just like, I want to do this. I'm just going to try it. I'm going to go for broke. Let's see what happens. And I think, you know gold rolling paper is is an incredible uh, example of of kind of how you do through the ideation process as well of like 
we're going to think about it, but we're also going to try it and we're going to see what makes the most sense. But we're not going to be so beholden to this one thing that if something else makes more sense, we're not going to go in that direction. I think that's exactly what you demonstrated. That's right. I, I agree with you completely, Ben. And I, I think that the 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 path that we took now there's different types of entrepreneurs right there's a hustler entrepreneur there's a engineer entrepreneur there's a sales entrepreneur there there's different types but i i think that what our space in the world is is we come up with something we launch it we look to see if it solves the problem in the market if people really want it if they do we iterate on it we try to make it better we try to grow it and, and and move it forward as, as fast as we possibly can. Although I'll say, you know, that I think one of the things that's broken about entrepreneurship education in America is that it there's this crazy dichotomy that doesn't seem to get explained. It's it's very schizophrenic because on one hand, we tell entrepreneurs, hey, fail fast. Like get out there and start something and just fail and move on to the next idea and fail fast. Except for absolutely never give up, right? Like hang on to your idea forever and never give up. And so I I think it really is confusing that a lot of people don't understand like, hey, no, wait, you can really have it both ways. You can definitely say, I'm going to test this idea out. I'm going to play with it. I'm going to put it in the market and see if it does well. If it does well, I'm going to run really hard and I'm going to go and go and go. And then I'm never going to give up. But that doesn't mean that you have to be fixated on the same idea the whole time and and really just you know burden yourself into that place of, man, if this isn't perfect, I can't launch it because then I'm stuck with it forever. Uh, it's just, it's not how the, the, the process works. It, it, you know, set yourself that big goal um, of, hey, I want to, uh, w- whatever, whatever your passion is, right? I want to be, um, I'm a chiropractor. I want to release a product that is used the world over. Okay, great. That's a goal that you can never give up on. That's reasonable which product and how you build one and what you do with it and what markets you put it in and your pricing and all that, man, that's experimentation. You got to be able to fail fast and move and go do the next thing. Uh, So I just think people sometimes they get stuck in that place of, man, I, I have to do this one thing and I have to win at it. And so I'm scared to get started versus, hey, just just play with the idea and go have some fun and see if it's something people really want. That is really well said. And and I'm glad that you brought that up because nobody ever talks about that fact, right? It's that, you know, you have to, you have to fail and failure is good for entrepreneurship and all this other stuff, but also never give up. And, and I think it's so poorly explained, like, like you said, because uh, many of the entrepreneurs that have been on this show, many of the successful entrepreneurs that I'm friends with, they will always tell me, that they never doubted it. But once they got to that point, it was very challenging to say, I need to move on. But once they did, it opened them up to so many more opportunities. And so um, I, I talk to people all the time about entrepreneurship in terms of what f- like actual failure, like bad failure looks like. Because something failing because it doesn't work or it doesn't make sense, I would consider a good thing. I learned my lesson. Not going to make that same mistake again. It was painful. 
I got I got the hurt that I needed out of it. And I learned my lesson because entrepreneurs cannot learn lessons from hearing it from other people. It just doesn't work. You have to do it yourself, right? The worst possible thing is if it succeeds to the point where it's mediocre and it's stable. <laughs> exactly. Because if that, I get something stable. Well, that's true in a relationship too, by the way. That is very <laughs> if true. If you're dating someone and it's mediocre, it's, it's really the worst. <laughs> it, it is because, and I think it's this, this whole like uh, mentality of, like you were talking about, like the don't quit or like don't give up on something, right? And like that is a great quality to have for a lot of things. What it's not a great quality to have is when you could do something better or bigger or something could be a lot better than what you're doing now. And that's also not to say, though, that, you know, you should look at any situation you're in and say it could always be better because I I don't believe in that either. I think that's how you become an unhappy person. If you're always striving for more and you're never content with anything, I think you're going to be miserable. However, if you hit that mediocrity and you're sitting in it and you start to get complacent and you start to get fat on your laurels, you're like, oh, this is fine. I'm I'm doing okay. I don't need to strive for anything better. I know it could be, but I don't need to push for that. That's really dangerous because it is so hard to leave that. It's like trying to leave quicksand because you have yeah. something there, but it's never going to be as good as it actually needs to be. And you're actually holding yourself back from something way better. And I think that seeking that excellence is important. I, I have, have built my life into this place now that I, I start things, I grow them, I want to move them forward, but then I need to grow myself out of that company. And, and it really has become a process now of how can I start this, get it to scale, get it to a place that I know it has sustainability, at which point you don't need me anymore. We need to go hire someone to, to grow from, from that point. And, and so I, I think you're totally correct. It's so easy to get into that place where I have a, 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 you know just enough that I feel like this is important instead of... No, we're always striving to scale this, to get it bigger, to to get to the the next place. And I I just love the process of putting, especially now with Code and Trust, our software development firm, we've got all these clients that we're helping launch into new pieces of software. Over 30 new pieces of software in the world today in our last three years. And and it is so exciting to help clients get into a space and and be able to launch a piece of software and learn from the market. But that's really what we preach to them is, look, you got to get something in minimum viable product in the world, have your employees or your customers using it. And then that feedback from them is what we're now going to use to go grow it to the next place and the next place. Absolutely. Yeah. I spot on. I, I agree with all of that. I wish I had more disagreement for you. Uh, <laughs> but Patrick, talk to me about what you're, what you're doing now. We were talking a little bit about um, a program that you're helping to run and some other stuff that you're doing. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. So we, we've, uh, we've got several nonprofit initiatives. Uh, I'm a co-director of Startup Grind in, in the D.C. market. If people are in D.C., Startup Grind is a, is a fantastic uh, worldwide movement to have fireside chats every month with entrepreneurs, and we do that 
hosted in DC. And then uh, in my, my home market of Charleston, South Carolina, we, we've got the Harbor Entrepreneur Center that has an accelerator and, and a total nonprofit um, to help create collision among entrepreneurs. So really get those mentors level entrepreneurs in the room with the startups and, and helping everybody move the community forward. You know, my, my big belief when it comes to economic development in a particular market is I believe entrepreneurship is the number one change agent in the world. hundred percent. If, if that's where we're starting, then I, I think on my nonprofit work and push and passion is how do we collect, help, and collide entrepreneurs of all types? Because if we just do that, we will move the world forward in ways we can't predict yet. I, I think yeah. you know a lot of times municipalities ask me like, "Hey, you know, Patrick, you, you know, you're really involved in all this stuff. What do we what do we need to do to help entrepreneurs?" And the made entrepreneur, the one that has already started things and already has resources, literally, he just needs the government to get out of the way. Get out right? of the way. Right. Yep. It, because, you know, she knows how to start a company. She knows how to raise money. She knows how to go get clients. She knows how to iterate products. That entrepreneur really just needs to know the other entrepreneurs. Because if you put those two entrepreneurs in the room, they're going to go start a business together and, and amazing things are going to happen. So I really exactly. just believe in getting entrepreneurs together and helping them move their, their life forward, which I'll, I'll end that, that question with, with where I am today. Professionally, Code and Trust was built on that same thought process. It's a software company with the vision of helping startup software companies do the things they need to do to grow and get to that market success as quickly as possible. We really wanted to engineer a firm that it, we, we, we called it code and trust for a reason uh, because that's what we're selling. We're selling code and we're selling trust. And we want to be that shop that people uh, really turn to in the, in the whole United States where they say, hey, we're starting a new piece of software. The only guys that that really know this space the way uh, we want to work is, is Code and Trust. That's our, our vision because we think of ourselves as preschool teachers. You know, a preschool <laughs> teacher, she wants her kids to be successful. She wants your kids to be successful. She just wants everyone to be successful, right? And, right. and at the end of the day, 25 years later, her fulfilling moment, is when a student walks up to her and says, hey, my life is different because you helped me when I was young. That's her fulfilling moment, and that's our fulfilling moment at Code & Trust. Uh, I had a, a dear friend of mine sell her business and, and get a big award in the last year, and in her acceptance speech, she shouted me out, and I have to tell you, Ben, there is no more fulfilling moment in my life than having someone say, my business is better. I was a better entrepreneur because Patrick Bryant was was in my my life. I mean, it, it is literally the thing that drives me every day. That's huge. That's awesome. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. We will absolutely make sure that we have you back on. What is the best place that people can find you and support you? 
I'm on LinkedIn as Patrick Bryant, so please feel free to connect with me. Uh, I love to, to make new connections that way. And codeandtrust.com is our website. Of course, I can be, I can be reached, and there's a ton of, of content and things on that site that people might, might care about if they've liked this message. Perfect. I will make sure I link that stuff in the show notes. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to my interview with Patrick Bryant. We release every other Wednesday, so I hope you guys will join us for the next one. Best place to go to listen to our episode is totspodcast.com. That'll take you to our big three for listening, which is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Also, check us out on Instagram. That's where I do all the show updates, as well as TikTok. We've been blowing up on TikTok. We're huge. We uh, Our biggest video now is at, like I think, 6.2 million views. So absolutely make sure you go check us out on TikTok. Uh, and again, Patrick, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Ben. It was such a joy. Look forward to seeing you. Absolutely. I'll see you guys next time.